0: Hello, podcast listeners. We at Politically Speaking are having the same issues that everyone else has. We're trying to figure out how to work from home during the coronavirus outbreak. Because of this, some of the audio you're going to hear in this episode will sound differently than what you're used to. We're asking for your patience as we work out the kinks over the next several days. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Senator Tony Luchdemeyer, a Republican from Parkville. Let's hit the music.
1: ...is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money.
0: Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm not here with my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum. Jason's on vacation all this week. I am joined by, or at least remotely by, Senator Tony Demire, a Republican from Parkville over on the other side of the state. Uh, Sander, it's great to have you here. Yeah, it's
1: it's good to be with you.
0: Yeah, so we are actually doing this interview while Jason is off, um, because you and Jason are old friends, or at least that's what he tells me. Can you confirm that's uh, the case?
1: Yes, Jason and I are, are, are good friends. We, we actually attended each other's weddings, and although I will tell you, and, and Jason will probably be embarrassed to hear this when he listens to the podcast, but when I ran for student government president in the zoo when we were both undergraduates jason voted for my opponent so so we are we're friends <laughs> in spite of that fact
0: so you're like frenemies
1: <laughs> we we started as frenemies and, and now i think it's blossomed into a full friendship
0: so i think jason and i have both wanted to have you on the podcast because you are involved in a lot of interesting things but he has been nervous about doing that um because of your personal relationship and he wants our listeners to know that he's not going to be involved in um, either the interview or, frankly, the production of this particular episode of the podcast. So everyone, rest assured, Jason's uh, acting in a very ethical manner. For me, who's new to Missouri, if you could like describe a little bit of what your district's like, if it's all suburban, if parts of it are rural, etc.
1: First of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's it's good to be here with you. Uh, So I represent the 34th senatorial district which encompasses all of platte and buchanan counties and so i'm over on the northwestern side of the state so the two main population centers of my district i have the northern section of kansas city uh, that sits north of the missouri river Um, and then i go all the way up to st joseph so those are my my two major population centers Uh, i would say 80 percent of my population lives in the northern section of kansas city which is the southern part of my district or up in St. Joseph. Everything in between by and large is pretty rural. So I have a kind of a unique district because I have two suburban areas um, or, or maybe even bordering on, on on urban. And then I have a lot of rural areas. So I live in an area where, you know, we have people who, you know, live in Kansas City, commute and work in the, in the, in the city core. Uh, and then I also have farmers in my district. And so it is a very diverse district.
0: So we're recording this on Tuesday morning, Let's move on to the topic of the day, the week, probably the month and some weeks to come, which is coronavirus. So you are in the state Senate. The state Senate has adjourned, I think, until at least March 30th. Is that correct? That's right. Because of coronavirus, the Senate decided that they should adjourn uh, for health reasons. What did you think of that decision? Was it something you supported?
1: We were scheduled to be on spring break. Uh, the week after this, um, and ultimately the, the consensus of the leadership team in the caucus was that we would go ahead and, and call session off uh, for this week. Um, our principal concern is looking out for the public health and safety of both the members of the legislature, our staff, uh, but then also the general public, and um, right now we have all these, these, these bans or these suggestions as to how many people should be in a place at, at first from the cdc i think was recommending 50 people um then it was it was down to 10 people Uh, the the state legislature we have tour groups that are coming through we have rallies that are held in the rotunda of the capitol it's not an exaggeration to say that we have thousands of people in and out of that building every single day from all over the state and all over the country and so if you look at the the risk factors that would be associated uh, with the coronavirus and large crowds of people um the, the state capitol is is that place and, you know, we have a lot of members in the legislature who uh, fit some of the risk criteria. They're over the age of 65. Some of them have chronic health issues. And so there was a genuine concern for public safety. And and uh, I know we'll, we'll probably talk about the impact on, on what the rest of the legislative session looks like. But really, the legislature only has one constitutional duty when we're in there, um, you know, between January and, and May, and that is to pass a budget to fund state government. Uh, there's a lot of legislative priority many of which I know we're going to talk about on the show, but there's really only one thing that we have to do, and that is pass the budget. I'm confident we're still going to be able to do that, even with some of these delays.
0: As you said, the only constitutional obligation is uh, for the legislature is to pass the budget. Do you think we're looking at a session where potentially you all come back in and the only thing that the General Assembly does for the rest of the session is get the budget through?
1: I think that's possible. I think it's unlikely. I think there are going to be a handful of priority issues uh, that are substantive in nature that are not related to the budget that will get done. Um, there, are, you know, the, the, frankly, the the legislature is we're going to have to triage the bills that are out there. Clearly, we're you know if, if we lose, uh, let's just say hypothetically, you know, three weeks to a month worth of session, um, we're going to have to prioritize what bills we think are the most important. And so the things that that I would look at are, you know, what are bills that have already passed the Senate and gone over to the House? What are the bills that have already passed the House and come over to the Senate? Um, Because those bills, because of where they are in the process, have already been prioritized by the House and the Senate leadership team to get them over to the other chamber. Um, And they're things that are far enough along in the process where if we had a truncated session, you could still move fast enough to get those things to the governor's desk. Um, so I know we're going to talk about a few of those bills, some of which um, I'm, I'm working on. Um, but but I do think it's it's likely that there will be some substantive legislation that uh, the General Assembly passes this year, but it's certainly going to be less, I think, than, than we would see in a normal session.
0: What do you think about the proposal that passed out of House Judiciary yesterday regarding sunshine laws uh, and, you know, closing meetings? as long as they're live-streamed or somehow otherwise available through the internet uh, during a health crisis.
1: Yeah, so I haven't had a chance to look at the bill in depth. I know there are some provisions in that bill uh, as it was originally filed that I have concerns with relating to the closure of certain legislative records that are subject to the sunshine law. Uh, We have a similar bill over in the Senate, and I actually oppose that legislation because I think that we need to be... Open and transparent, and that our legislative records should be available to to the public. Um, but in terms of you know the specific provisions, which I think may have been added later uh, to the bill of of allowing um, you know committee hearings to occur over the internet or via video, I, I think those are appropriate things, particularly in the in the circumstances that we're living in now, um, where we've got um, concerns about public health and safety because of a viral outbreak. We need to make sure that we're keeping members of the legislature safe. We need to make sure that we're keeping legislative staff safe. And we need to make sure that we're keeping the public safe. And fortunately, with, with modern technology, you know, we can have uh, video conferencing where witnesses can testify in committee hearings. That was something that we wouldn't have been able to do 20, 30 years ago, but that technology is now available. And so I think we should be utilizing that. Uh, that that on the one hand make sure that people are able to uh, petition their government and to be able to make their opinions heard whenever we're hearing bills um, to be able to live stream our our hearings so that members of the public and the media uh, have access to that Um, but at the same time being able to balance that public access with with public health concerns I think is really important and so um, that aspect of the bill is something that I think is is needed uh, and something that I would be interested in, in seeing uh, go forward in the process if we've got the time to actually get a bill like that passed
0: right i think you're right there were earlier versions of the bill and i also was not there yesterday so i i don't know if they've been stripped out but i i think i'm reading that they have there were earlier versions of the bill that had to do with closing off public records and such i i i was more asking and i think you addressed it about um, the provisions that seem to have been put in recently to deal with how do you limit the number of people in a room right. when a government body is meeting because of course, normally we don't want to limit the number of people in a room when a government body is meeting.
1: And I and, and don't get me wrong. I mean I, I believe fervently in you know, the First Amendment and that the public should have full access to to the legislature and our proceedings uh, that we should have transparency. But at the same time, we have, we have to balance that need uh, with public safety and public health. And given modern technology, I think there is a way that we can accomplish both of those things while not putting anybody at undue risk.
0: Completely. I mean, I think, you know, look, these are I'm a journalist. I obviously don't like the idea of shutting down a public meeting or, or keeping people out of a government meeting. I'm the type of person who attends those meetings. But you know, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days, like, you know, you got to balance public safety, as you said, and the spread of the disease with with what what you would normally do. I mean, these are just not normal times. So, you know, I, I think I understand why the discussion is taking place. It kind of makes me nervous, but I mean, we got to do something, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think something has to be done. At this point, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Senator Luke DeMeyer about some of the bills he's been working on and he has sponsored in this legislative session. All right, and we're back. So, Senator Demeyer, let's move on to some things that you've sponsored in this legislative session and, and leave coronavirus behind for a bit. You and I both wanted to talk about Senate Bill 600, which is a bill that deals with violent crime. It does a whole bunch of things. Uh, it's one of It sounds like it's one of your top priorities this session.
1: Yeah, it, it is definitely one of my top priorities. I, I chair the Judiciary Committee. You know, I'll, I'll tell you kind of what prompted it is – you know, some of the recent um, national media attention that both St. Louis, Kansas City, and Springfield have received. Uh, we had a, an unfortunate report uh, based on FBI statistics that came out uh, in USA Today that showed that St. Louis was the fifth most violent city in America, followed by Kansas City at number six, and then Springfield at number 12. And so there is a, a violent crime epidemic that's, that's sweeping across our state. And I think we need to make important modifications to our state's criminal code to make sure that we're keeping people safe. And so that that's what motivated Senate Bill 600 and the many provisions that are in the bill.
0: Can you give us a quick overview of what the bill does, and then we'll get into some more specifics about the different portions of it? Because there's, I don't know, there's at least what, like four or five different kind of parts of it
1: yeah so so really high level um one of the provisions makes some important reforms to uh, the way that probation is handled for violent offenders in the state of missouri Um, it it basically limits the ability of judges to grant probation for people who commit certain very violent offenses whether those whether that be second degree murder uh, which is currently eligible for probation or whether that is a a violent offense committed by using a dangerous weapon like a gun. Uh, the second thing that the bill does is it puts in place some important enhancements to the state's armed criminal action statute, which is the current law that makes it a separate felony to use a gun or another dangerous weapon to commit a felony. Uh, and so it's a, it's a penalty enhancement. And then the last thing that the bill does um, is it makes some, some modifications to the state's armed criminal or armed criminal street gang, statute, which is very similar to the federal RICO statute that uh, many listeners have probably at least heard of before, uh, that criminalizes gang activity. And then finally, I think I said that was the last one, but the, the last provision uh, is a provision uh, that makes uh, carjacking, which I know has been a, a big epidemic in St. Louis and around the state, uh, makes carjacking a separate criminal offense, and this is something that the Attorney General's Office has been very supportive of.
0: So when you say the bill enhances penalties, are you basically saying it lengthens sentences for people convicted of violent crimes?
1: Yes, it, it would. So in the case of the armed criminal uh, action statute, uh, what it does is it has a step-up provision. It says that if a person is convicted uh, of armed criminal action and they are a felon at the time they commit it, so in, in Missouri and under under both state and federal law, uh, you cannot possess a firearm if you are a convicted felon. Uh, it's called felon in possession. And so what the bill does is if a person is a felon in possession and they're caught with a firearm and they are using the firearm in commission of an offense, there is a enhanced penalty for that. And, and the reason is we want it to serve as an additional deterrent uh, for people who have already been convicted of, of felonies uh, to, to not be out using guns to, to commit additional felony offenses
0: why do you think there should be enhanced penalties? Like, what, what do you think? You think it's going to be a deterrent? Are there other reasons? Why do you think this is going to be effective in combating crime?
1: I'll, I'll talk a little bit about statistics. And I'll talk a little bit anecdotally about that. Um, but from a statistical perspective, I mean, if you look, um, the, the, the most major sweeping uh, criminal justice reform uh, that the country really had ever seen uh, was in 1993. Congress passed the omnibus crime bill, which put into place uh, what are now the federal sentencing guidelines and a lot of the other uh, sentencing requirements at the federal level. And if you look at the number of violent crimes that were being committed across America, you know, starting in the early 1980s all the way up until 1993 when that bill passed, you'll see an upward trajectory. In other words, violent crime was on the rise on a very consistent basis over a decade-long period, year after year after year. And then in 1994, the year after the bill passed, all of a sudden you see this this decline start to happen almost as soon as that bill passes. And for the next decade, there was a consistent decrease in violent crime nationwide. Uh, So what that shows me is is that the one experiment that the federal government has done where they've enhanced penalties and had longer sentences for violent offenders – that has an impact on, on the number of violent offenders who are out on the streets. Number one, you're putting people in prison and making sure that they're not out there able to re it uh, We had some crime statistics that we pulled over the last decade in Missouri uh, for individuals who are granted probation, who commit uh, you know, class C or higher felonies, meaning a felony that carries a 10-year prison sentence or, or greater, and the recidivism rate among those Offenders who are placed on probation is 65%. So, 65% of those individuals who are commit, convicted of those, of those felonies and then put back out on the streets on probation, 65% of them are going to reoffend with a Class C felony or higher, meaning they commit another offense that carries a 10 year sentence or more. So, there's no question when you get people who are dangerous off the streets, they're not able to reoffend if they're in prison.
0: So I find this really interesting because this is kind of counter to what the movement has been, I think, on the policy side uh, for the past decade. I think there's been an effort to roll back harsher penalties um, for crimes, mostly for nonviolent crimes. I mean, in fairness, mostly for sort of low-level drug offenses and stuff. But there's been kind of a Movement And frankly, from some conservative quarters, I mean, the the Koch brothers were very involved in this. Do you think that those those types of efforts that have been made over the past decade or so are uh, like inappropriate? Do you do you see this as being in in conflict with those efforts?
1: You know, I don't. And, and really, for the exact reason that you described, which is most of the criminal justice reform that has taken place to give people second chances, um, has been focused on nonviolent offenders. All the legislation that is in Senate bill 600 is all focused very specifically on, on violent offenders. It's, it's focused on people in gangs that are committing violent offenses. It's focused on people who are using firearms to commit felonies. It's focused on people who are committing some of the most heinous crimes under the criminal code and making sure that people who are, Rapists, people who are committing armed robbery, people who are committing second-degree murder—that they don't have the ability to get put on probation, be released back out on the streets to reoffend—and so I think that 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 really what I'm proposing uh, in terms of cracking down on violent offenders is harmonious with a lot of the other things the legislature has been doing, and and has been done at the national level when it comes to giving second chances for nonviolent.
0: So some of the people who were sentenced under harsher sentences um, in the early 90s that you referenced that kind of came online in the 80s and the early 90s are now very elderly. <laughs> and they cost the prison system a lot, prison systems across the country a lot of money. Are you concerned that having longer sentences or enhanced penalties is going to result in people in in the cost of incarcerating people going up because what what happens is people who are in prison don't qualify for medicare this is for our audiences you may know this but this is for their i guess benefits so prison systems are kind of saddled with people who are in their 70s and 80s who are still in prison with the entire cost of providing their health care so are you concerned about like the cost of incarcerating people going up if you enhance penalties
1: so I think there's no question there's going to be costs that are associated with that. But, you know, I look at what the core functions of government are. And, and one of the core functions of government, in my mind, is public safety. I mean, we spent the whole you know first segment of the show talking about coronavirus and the importance of keeping the, the public safe and the government's role in doing that. Um, I think that's, that's certainly true whenever it comes to, you know, making sure that violent folks are off the streets. I mean, kids and, and parents should not be in fear You know, somebody getting shot because the government has failed to take violent offenders and and take them off the streets. And there are costs associated with that. There's costs associated with having police officers, but I think all of your viewers would agree we need to have police officers to make sure that we're keeping our community safe.
0: Okay, I got one more question on this topic, which is related to your recidivism uh, statistic. I think you say that 65% of what a certain group of people are recidivate, which means they they commit another crime once they've been released. Do you think there are other ways to address that other than keeping people in prison longer? Like, I, I think there are some people that would argue that one of the reasons people end up committing crimes again is because this, the services they're getting when they come out or even when they're in prison aren't, aren't great. Like, they're not getting a whole lot of life skills and other things they might need to keep them from doing that again.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of making sure that we have, you know, transitional assistive services for people once they get out of prison. Um, you know, I think that people who commit heinous offenses, particularly people who are repeat offenders, who are dangerous felons, need to spend some time uh, where they are in isolation and they are not part of the population just because they have shown um, that, that they cannot – function in society without reoffending. And by the way, any person who's placed on probation is going to have a probation or parole officer they check in with. And so it's not as though these people are getting released and they, they have nobody that's watching over them. They do. 65% that I mentioned are, are committing these offenses in spite of those services being rendered to them and in spite of having somebody trying to watch over them.
0: Let's move on to talking about the prescription drug monitoring program, uh, legislation that's moving through the general assembly. You have been, uh, very involved with this issue. Can you talk a little bit about where Missouri stands with getting a prescription drug monitoring program?
1: Well, we stand a lot closer than we have, uh, any other session over the last decade. So, uh, PDMP, which, which I sponsored this year, uh, is is something uh, that's that's kind of unique to Missouri. Missouri is the only state in the country without a statewide prescription drug monitoring program, and um, I, I I sponsored the bill last year and this year in the Senate. Uh, we actually right before we went into recess last week uh, passed PDMP out of the Senate. Traditionally, the bill has died over on the Senate side of the building, and so to to actually get a bill out of the Senate and back over to the House. Um, that was a that was a huge victory um, for those who are in support of PDMP, and again, we can talk more about the the details of that bill. Um, but but I'm, I'm I'm confident that we're going to have something that goes to the governor's desk this year, and we're able to put this issue behind us.
0: So, why do you think having a PDMP is important? I mean, if you've sponsored the bill for two years, what what why do you think Missouri needs one?
1: Absolutely. So, one of the things that we know from the vital statistics in the state is that. Prescription drug overdoses are now one of the leading non-natural causes of death in the state of Missouri. So last year uh, and the year before, more people died for prescription drug overdoses than died in car accidents. So it's a major epidemic, uh, the only non-natural cause of death that, that actually exceeds uh, the mortality rate for, for drug overdoses is suicide. And so this is something that, that the state needs to be concerned about with, uh, just as a matter of public safety. And so what PDMP does is it gives yet another tool to physicians uh, to make sure that they can track people and their, their prescription habits. So if an individual uh, gets a prescription written, you know in St. Louis County, uh, there's no good way without a statewide PDMP if the person goes to an adjoining city and they gets another doctor to prescribe the exact same fill of opioids to track that. So what PDMP is, it's, it's a user-friendly, one-stop shop for physicians to be able to log in, to look and see if the person has had other prescriptions filled, what their prescribing uh, habits are, and to, to be able to make the best possible decision for their patient to make sure that people don't get, um, you know, don't get addicted to opioids.
0: So what makes this year different? Like, why has the Senate been willing to, as you said, the Senate is traditionally the place where the PDMP has run into problems. Why has the Senate this year um, found a way to pass a PDMP?
1: Yeah, so um, there were, there was still significant opposition uh, to the PDMP this year in the Senate. Uh, we had uh, at least six or seven members that were pretty vocal opponents to it. Um, and what i did is i started having conversations with those folks early in the process um, throughout the session and you know the week before the bill came to the floor uh, i had a meeting with three of the uh, members who were probably some of the most vocal opponents of pdmp and i sat down with them i said look you know w- what are what are the objections that you have and what are the things that we can do uh, in in the bill to address those objections. I know you may not vote yes on the bill. I know you may not love it whenever it comes to a vote, but what are the things that we can do to at least get it to be more palatable? And the, the two principal objections uh, to PDMP, uh, both in past sessions and this year from opponents, has been, number one, uh, we don't want a database that's controlled by the government. And number two, we don't want to have a database where people's prescriptions can be you know, leisurely, uh, perused by government officials. Now, of course, that was never true under any version of the bill that that, that the government had free reign access to data. But that was the concern, um, and so so we ended up, you know, working on some changes to the bill that addressed both those concerns. Number one, uh, the bill traditionally had the PDMP uh, sitting under the regulatory oversight of the Department of Health and Senior Services, which is obviously a government agency. Um, and that there were certain limited circumstances where law enforcement would have access to data in the PDMP if, if warrants were issued or other appropriate steps were taken for them to gain access to it. And so we did very simply is we removed government from the process. PDMP has been, over the last several years, really viewed as a, a, a treatment tool for physicians. And so if that's really the purpose, just to make sure that physicians are – Uh, being able to give the best possible care to their patients. We really don't need government to be involved in that. And so what we did is we replaced DHSS with a private sector board uh, comprised of two doctors from the Board of Healing Arts, um, two pharmacists from the Board of Pharmacy, a nurse from the Board of Nursing, and then a dentist from the Board of Dentistry. So now all of the four different professions in Missouri that have prescribing capabilities, they're going to be the ones that actually run the PDMP, not the government. And then the second thing that we did is we just said that the only reason that data can be accessed in the PDMP is for is for patient treatment. And, and it can only be accessed by uh, the professions that have prescribing and dispensing capabilities. And so what we did is we, we removed the government from the process. We made it a private sector solution uh, that is focused on patient care as opposed to focus on law enforcement and some of the other things I think that the bill has focused on in the past.
0: Are you confident? So this bill, the original version of this bill passed through the House. Obviously, some of the changes you just mentioned were made in the Senate. Now it's headed back to the House. Are you confident, you know, assuming coronavirus does not derail everything? Um, are you are you confident that this bill is going to be passed by the House and go to the governor?
1: I think the bill will will pass the House again, and I think it will be headed to the governor's desk. I, Whenever we were negotiating the bill, I made sure to keep Representative Holly Rader, who's the sponsor of the bill, uh, involved in that process the entire way, because the last thing I wanted to do was pass a bill out of the Senate to only have it go to the House and not be able to have the votes to get it done. And so uh, she is comfortable with the, with the changes in the bill. I, in fact, I think she, she likes the changes that we made. I think it's going to address a lot of the concerns— uh, that some members in the House had to the bill traditionally, um, and then I know that she's had conversations with the Speaker of the House, and the Speaker I think has publicly now stated in several interviews that he's eager to get the bill from the governor's desk. So I I do think that we will we will get the bill through the House and 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 over to the governor's desk.
0: And has the governor indicated he'll sign the bill?
1: So he hasn't said that specifically. He's been very preoccupied, as you might imagine, with coronavirus and and a lot of the issues that are at the forefront uh, for his administration right now. But what I will tell you is, is that in December of 2018, the first year that the governor was in office, uh, he came out publicly in support of PDMP, said that it was something that was long overdue uh, and encouraged the legislature during last year's legislative session to pass the bill. Obviously, we didn't get that done, but I have no reason to believe that the governor's attitude on PDMP has passed. I know it's something that he's been very supportive of.
0: Okay. Well, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Uh, Senator Luchdemeyer, I'm going to ask you a question we've been asking everyone, which is, can you tell us something in your district if people were traveling there that they should, you know, go and see and experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have have all kinds of interesting things uh, to see in my district. Uh, It's hard to to limit it just to one, but uh, if I were to put something at the top of the list, Uh, So Jesse James, uh, the famous outlaw uh, and train robber, uh, was actually shot and killed in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, Very famous story. He's hanging a picture on a wall and got got shot in the back of the head by uh, a a fellow gang member. Uh, And so you can actually view the Jesse James home in St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, where Jesse James was shot. Uh, It's a really interesting piece of history that's, that's right here in Northwest Missouri. And so if I had one thing to... Uh, tell people they should go visit my district. It would be the Jesse James help.
0: That's a great suggestion. You know, if I come out your way, I'll I'll definitely take a look at that. Um, Okay. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast. So Senator Luchdmeier, why don't you tell people where they can find you uh, if they want to reach out to you, particularly on the World Wide Web?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, you can follow me on social media on both, Facebook and Twitter at tony4forMissouri and my website is tony4forMissouri.com. Uh, and so I've I've tried to do my best uh, to keep uh, individuals who are interested in state government certainly my constituents up to date with all the things I'm working on and so follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Or uh, go look me up on my website.
0: Good on you for keeping your last name out of your social media presence. Because I think it might trip people up and they might have a hard time spelling it. I also have a last name that's hard to spell. And that's been a struggle for people finding me on social media.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If I use my last name for any of my social media tag handles, I would would definitely lose uh, followers for sure.
0: Okay. We've come to the end of our podcast. For all of my stories and Jason's stories, please go to stlpublicradio.org. Our politics editor is Fred Ehrlich. Our news director is Shula Newman. And our sound engineer is John Larson. Come and join us again next time. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much.